You look a little different this morning. Our seating arrangement has changed since I last was here in the pulpit, but it is good to see you. Grateful to be with you again. I want to thank Pastor Stephen for speaking last week on shorter notice than is custom for us. I want to thank our church family for your prayers, uh, for Jenny and myself, and for those who traveled last week to uh, Pastor Chuck's funeral. It is Always certainly a challenge when you lose a friend unexpectedly. There's grief and there's questions. But God's grace is great. And he speaks to us again in his word to give us comfort and to give us hope. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We continue our study through this letter. We'll look this morning at verses 11 and 12. In this section, in these verses, we're told by Peter that Christians must live exemplary lives with the kind of conduct that will make unbelievers take notice. There's something that is distinct about the way that Christians live. Pastor Alexander McLaren once commented, the world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They may only ever hear about Jesus Christ. He's stating that your life may be the only Bible that some people will ever read. If that is true, what will unbelievers know about Jesus Christ through the way that you live? What will they know of his power to change the heart and life of a sinner? What will they know of the priorities of Jesus by your priorities? Peter, in these verses, calls us to live godly lives, which is the single most effective foundation for showing the gospel to be attractive and believable. We'll see this morning in verses 11 and 12 that Peter urges believers to live godly lives before a watching world for God's glory. Let's read our text this morning, and I want to back up and read both the context before and after. So we'll begin our reading again in verse 9, and we'll read all the way through verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 2 In verse 9, God's word says to us, his people, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that for this purpose you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We might even add here now in verse 11, Therefore, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your very soul, your inner man. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, attractive, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor 
as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let's ask for his help as we work through this text together this morning. Father, we come before you acknowledging our need of your grace. We pray to the author of this book, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to understand what it is you would have us to know and learn of our Christ and of ourselves and of how we're to live in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. When we face slander or hardship or opposition, or as these people here in Turkey, we might say, are facing persecution, we can be tempted toward one of two extremes. On the one hand, we can be tempted to respond in anger and become more harsh or more determined or more pronounced in our proclamation of what we believe is right and true. Or on the other hand, we can get quiet and keep our Christian beliefs to ourselves in order to prevent any further attack or opposition. This too is self-protective and self-focused. Both of these choices are, are worried about me and how I'm being perceived. But Peter will continually in this letter remind us of Christ's example. When he was reviled, he did not attack in response, but he continued entrusting himself, putting his confidence in God. He chose to bless those who persecuted him. And Peter is again encouraging these believers to imitate Christ's behavior. I want us to briefly reorient ourselves to what's happening in this letter to where we are. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, again, Peter recounts the incredible nature of our salvation, the many varied facets of the gospel. And what he's saying is that when you are facing hardship and opposition, where should you start? His answer is to rehearse the truths of the gospel. Remember all that Christ has done for you. Spend time looking at it, immersing yourself in it, meditating on it again and again. Rejoice in what God has done for you in Christ. And as you do, you will then be prepared and motivated to do the five, obey the five commands that Peter then gives to us in the following verses. He tells us five separate things. He says we are to live in hope. We are to live in holiness. We are to live in fear. We are to live in love. And finally, in chapter 2, we're to live in longing. And then once Peter has given us these commands from verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, he again goes right back to who we are in Christ, our cornerstone. Do you think it's important to Peter, as we've studied this letter so far, that Christians know who they are in Christ if they're going to stand firm through hardship? Absolutely, that's essential, Peter's telling us. But now, beginning with verse 11, we come to a brand new section. Most commentators see chapter 2, 11 through chapter 411 as the main body of the letter. Up until this point, we've been considering our new identity in Christ. And now Peter intends to answer for these believers how they're to live in this fallen world while facing unjust opposition. 
This is a call to mission that will shape the following sections of Peter's letter. Here in these two verses, he's going to tell us two commands. And then those two commands are going to be illustrated in four different situations in the following verses. So this morning, our text breaks neatly into these two sections. After Peter again, once again, highlights our identity in Christ, he gives us a negative command and then a positive command. So first, as beloved exiles, we must fight the passions of our flesh. Peter begins this verse addressing these believers as beloved. At least one other translation has chosen to translate this word as dear friends. But the Greek text favors the reading we have here in the ESV. It's beloved. Those who are dearly loved. That fits the context, doesn't it? Who loves these believers? Who loves us as God's people? Well, certainly for these believers, Peter is evidencing that he does. He's writing them this letter. He's demonstrating his concern. But even more importantly, Peter's telling us that God himself loves his people. It's important to come back to that again. This is the same term used by God, the Father, after Jesus' baptism when he declares, This is my beloved Son. God says this to his people, Israel, in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. It defies logical explanation. It's simply because God is a God of love and he chose to make us his people. Peter has taken up this exact same language and he's applying it to believers in these churches. He's saying, as you struggle with opposition in this world, know that you are loved by the God of heaven. Be sure of that position. Believers are uniquely special to God. Just think of it. You love your own children in a unique way. When other children in the neighborhood come to play, I, I want to be kind to them. I want to show them uh, respect and care. But there's no other children on this earth that I love more than my own. That's what God is saying to us. He's initiated this relationship with us. He's transferred us from this kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. We've received his mercy. All this does is not to try to tell us how salvation works. That's not the point. This is a letter of an encouragement for endurance of people under stress. It's highlighting his nature, his love, his mercy. And it's saying, anchor yourself there. These truths are to strengthen our faith and to motivate our response to him. You're loved by the God of heaven, church family, not because there's anything virtuous or great about you. He didn't look down through time and say, they're going to be great on my team someday. 
He loved you because he's a loving and merciful and gracious God, and he wants to display that glory to all the nations. He loves you because he is great, and he is amazing, and he is loving, and he is immensely generous in his grace. And Peter encourages us by coming back again and again to this identity in Christ. So first, in these verses, Peter says, recognize who you are. Not only are we beloved, but he continues. He comes back to another title that he's used. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We've seen these ideas before in chapter 1, verse 1. Again, in verse 17, sojourners here means those who live in a foreign country, but they're not citizens. The second title, exile, means something similar or synonymous. It refers to visitors who are making a brief stay. We're to have a visitor's mindset. Abraham used both of these words of himself in Genesis 23. When Sarah died in the land of Canaan, Abraham had no land in which to bury her. And we read in that chapter, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner. And a foreigner. In the Old Testament Greek translation, these are the exact same words. Abraham is saying this land was not his home. He'd not put down roots there. He was a visitor in that land. Peter's trying to reorient our identity in this world by bringing up these titles again and again. We're not primarily citizens of this country in which we live. And our demeanor and our attitude toward our country should be reflective of that. That's hard for us sometimes, isn't it? But as Christians, we're citizens of another country, we're told in Hebrews 13 and 11. We're first citizens of God's kingdom. With Abraham, we stand in a long line of God's people who are called out of their native land. Therefore, we should feel out of place with the values and beliefs of the world around us. That shouldn't seem so strange or off-putting to us. We should look at the world around us differently, not because we're to judge others, but because we now have a different destination, a more significant citizenship. You see, our distinction in the world comes from the fact that we are dearly loved by God. And we love him in response. Remember, our our thoughts of this world is not to say, you all are bad over there and we are good because we know how to live. No, we say we're living for God and the world sees that and they don't understand it. And the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We're not standing above and against our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family. We simply are saying our allegiance is someplace they don't understand. And therefore, that's why there's separation. As long as we live in this world, our lives as Christians should display a certain detachment. We have a visitor's mindset. How you view your identity in this world will shape how you behave in it. If you're merely a visitor passing through, you will not intend to be comfortable here. Think about how this challenges the way that we live Monday through Saturday. 
You'll not give your life to the American dream. As if temporal success, money and comfort and pleasure and the bigger house and the better car and the best job and the 401k is what you're striving for. So are you traveling lightly? Are you traveling lightly through this world? What does your life demonstrate that you're living for? How would seeing yourself as a sojourner and a stranger affect the way that you plan your budget? How would it affect the way you understand success at work or in college or on your team? How would it change the way you think about politics? How would it shape your ambitions for your children or your future? How would it change your view of security in this life? Is your life being shaped by this gospel identity? Or are you, like unbelievers around you, trying to grab and gather and hoard all the pleasures that you can get in this life? Are you a sojourner and an exile? How's that being borne out in your living? We're to meditate on the encouragement offered in these titles given to all of God's children. Remember, believer, you are beloved of God. You may feel like an outsider. And Peter's saying there's supposed to be some of that. You may feel as though you have no friends. You may be wearied by feeling like a stranger at a job surrounded by unbelievers. People who do not share your values and beliefs. You may have had to sacrifice close friendships or family relationships when you came to Christ. Yet no matter how others view you, Peter's saying we're to remind ourselves of God's view of you. We're loved by him personally intimately, intentionally, consistently. In spite of our own weaknesses, in spite of our sins, his commitment to you is intending to inform and motivate now your response. So secondly, we come to the command, fight your primary enemy. The phrase here carries the weight of a command, though it's not technically a command in the Greek language. Peter's urging us to abstain from the passions of our flesh. To abstain means to hold ourselves away from strong fleshly desires. Passions is a good translation because it's not just desire, it's a strong, consuming desire. Think of that toddler maybe in the grocery store that you've seen, certainly not in your family, that you've seen that they are overcome by a desire in the store for that thing that they absolutely must have. They're consumed by that desire. Now, often when we see a description like this in the Bible, we could conclude that it refers primarily to sexual passions or sexual lusts. Certainly that would be included here, but that's not all that's included. The passions of our flesh refer to our general, natural drive towards selfishness, toward living for me and what I can get for what I want. For some, it would definitely apply to sexual temptations. Maybe that's the passions of your flesh that you deal with the most. But for others, it may apply to gossip, wanting to appear to be in the know. 
It may appeal to your pride. It may apply to your pride that you have to be right. It may apply to worry. You hate that things are out of your control and you don't know what's going on. It could apply to covetousness or discontent that you don't like the circumstances that God's allowed in your life because you don't view them as favorable. These passions of our flesh are waging war against our own soul. The word soul here refers to the whole self, the inner man. Now, Peter intends for us to understand the intensity of this fight. We hear this New Testament language often, but don't miss the intensity here of this sentence. Look again at the beginning of the verse. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This urging applies both to the negative and the positive command, but the word for urge highlights this strong appeal or plea. The New King James goes so far to translate this word as beg. I beg you to abstain from the flesh. Second, the word or the verb wage war, it's in the present tense, highlighting that this is a continual ongoing war. It doesn't end. The older you get, the more mature in Christ you get, it doesn't end. Third, the word itself means more than just a brief skirmish. It means a military campaign. It's not a singular battle. It's a campaign, a long, protracted fight. Now, Peter is using this image intentionally. It was chosen for a purpose. This fight against your flesh is no easy matter. And for you as believers, I'm not informing you of something you don't understand. This is a battle. But you need to fight as if it's a battle. The Christian life must not be viewed passively in which we simply let go and and let God. No, we depend on His grace. Any change is, is accomplished by His strength made perfect in our weakness. But we exercise spiritual disciplines to resist our flesh. We're given responsibility right here in this phrase. We must fight. When we know we're struggling again and again with a particular temptation, we're to cut it out. Matthew 5 says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. We repent and then make it hard to sin in that way again. You find another believer who will help you in that fight. Finally, then we replace those desires with greater ones. We've seen at the beginning of chapter 2, we're to long for the sincere milk of the word by which we taste his goodness. You will not let go of that passion that you lie to yourself and say that's pleasing in the moment unless you find a greater, superior joy. In this life, we will not ever fight in perfection, but we must continue to fight in the right direction. 
Martin Luther, centuries ago, wrote of this struggle. He said, as soon as the Spirit and faith enters our hearts, we become aware that we are so weak that we cannot beat down the least imagination and sparks of temptation. And we see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of the head even to the foot. Before we believed, we walked according to our own lusts. And he's saying, as Peter says, we were unaware. In our ignorance, Peter has said, but now the Spirit has come and would purify us. If you then have wicked thoughts, you should not on this account despair. Don't be surprised by that. Only be on your guard that you're not taken prisoner by them. Church family, the Holy Spirit through this pen of Peter is urging you to recognize that as long as you live this life, you must be engaging in a fight against your own passions. If you're not warring against your own flesh right now, you're doing something wrong and it's likely you're giving in to your sins. We must understand that we will be in this fight until we are finally saved from the presence of sin. But we can be confident that we can have victory in this fight. When we were saved, we were given his power. We were rescued from both the penalty and the power of sin. We don't have to lose. We can see gradual success. But it will be a fight until the end. Until we see Christ face to face, we must wage war against the presence of sin. In what may be a fictional story, an essay in a London newspaper once asked, what's wrong with the world today? Perhaps you've heard this story before. The philosopher and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote in, Dear Sir, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Jesus warned Peter directly that Satan sought to sift him. And he did. Peter knew from experience what it was to be tempted and to fail miserably. But notice the specific direction of Peter's warning, his command here. He's warning us that the danger is not that Satan is the cause of our sinning. He can only tempt. But our own hearts desires that choose to believe and act upon the lies, the temptations he dangles in front of us. It's only ever our own desires that give in to sin, our own hearts. James writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. The danger isn't out there. It's right here. It's right here. It's not that you're facing hardship in a sin-cursed world. It's not your environment. It's the enemy within that's your greatest threat. Church family, we're not at war with those who do not know Jesus. If our world was better, if it had greater values, if the citizenship of the United States were more moral, that wouldn't take away the danger. It might produce some wonderful benefits that we've seen in history before, but that's not our real problem, Peter says. The enemy is within. What passions of the flesh is Peter pointing at? Well, we've seen him list some of these. Consider again chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so put, it, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Here he's saying our passions 
and our desires for self-exaltation, they show up even within the church as attacks on other people. He'll say later in chapter 4, verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That time for living that way is over. You need to remember that and live that way. He says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Here's what's happening. Here's the danger. Our flesh wars against us by dimming the beauties of our God. He just said our lives are to proclaim the excellencies of him. Our hearts, just like Eve's in the garden, questions the goodness of God. It seeks to substitute a more immediate gratification than walking in fellowship with God. So what specific sins in your life consistently dim God's greatness in your sight? That question helps us see our sin can be subtle over time. It may not be an outright evil thing. It could be a preoccupation with this life. What idols and temptations seem to you to be more appealing than fellowship with him? We're to abstain from those. How? How are we to fight our sinful passions? The tools are all right here before us in this text. First, we remember our identity before God. Remember what Peter's been telling us. Even remember those commands he goes into. Those five commands. But remember first your identity. You are dearly loved. You've been rescued from the power of sin by his grace. How can you live as if you're a slave to those things anymore? Second, remember that you're a sojourner and exile in this life. Remember there's more and better to come. The hardest a Christian will ever have it is right now in this life. Don't make it harder by choosing to sin and give in to your sinful desires. Third, Consider the danger of your passions. Be warned of the dangers of sin. They war continually, powerfully against your soul. So often we believe the lie of the tempter that our sinful choices will not have damaging effects, that they can be kept private, that it's not that big of a deal, that we can enjoy it here in the moment and no one will be the wiser. But our sin always hurts others. It always damages our relationship with God. Secondly, as beloved exiles, we must not only abstain from our fleshly passions, but secondly, we must keep our conduct honorable. Verse 12 says again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that for this purpose, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How are we to interact and engage with those who do not know Christ around us? First, by abstaining from our sinful desires, and second, by living in an attractive way. Practice living in a winsome manner. The word honorable here means excellent or morally beautiful We could say winsome or attracted. Our way of living, of loving God, of loving others should reflect the excellencies. Listen to that word. The excellencies of him who called us. 
The use of the word Gentiles here is not specifically used of a certain race or demographic or ethnic group of people. It refers more generally to those who have no knowledge or relationship with God. It's unbelievers in general. And Peter also here tells us that unbelievers will speak against you as an evildoer. Why? Why? He answers that again in chapter 4. He writes, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in these sinful ways, sensuality, passions, lawless idolatry. He continues, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They can't understand why you think that what they're doing is not good. So when you say it's not good to identify yourself by your sexual desires, whether that's a same-sex attraction, whether that's some new identity that someone has just invented, they can't understand why you would say, no, don't do that. That's not good for you. That's too repressive. That's not loving. They malign you. So what do people then notice about you? What is different in your life that reflects God's character? What are you currently living? We are rather currently living in a time of fearfulness and anxiety. That's the temptation around us, isn't it? As a Christian, are you demonstrating that you're different than that? That you have a confidence and an unshakable hope in a God who reigns over the affairs of men, over the political turmoil in this world? Are you living in a countercultural way? Do you perceive your world in a different way? Can your unbelieving neighbors and friends and coworkers hear that in your conversation, see it in your comments on social media? Many in our society currently have a discouraged or negative view of the events in our world and in their lives. But Christians are to be joyful. They're to be optimistic in spite of the hardships, because we know something that is true beyond this life, beyond what we see temporally. So are you filled with joy in spite of your circumstances? Are you rehearsing truth that helps you to be optimistic and say, I don't have to view life through my circumstances? Are you living for something that's not dependent on them, that transcends the difficulties of life? Essentially, Peter's asking us, are you living out in your daily life who you are and what you say you believe? Secondly, in verse 12, we see that we're to practice living in a God-glorifying manner. This last phrase, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This provides us with an important purpose for consistent godly living. The word see here means more than just a single glance or a moment of observation. It's a word that means to observe carefully, to watch over a period of time. It indicates a longer period of observation. It includes the memory and reflection on that behavior that's been observed. What we read in 1 Peter is not only that we're to live in fear because God's paying attention, We're to live in a godly way because unbelievers are paying attention as well. 
As an unbeliever observes over time, they realize that accusations and slanders against the consistent Christian's character are not only unfounded and untrue, but those same behavior patterns reveal something supernatural in that Christian's life. Do people see the supernatural power of the gospel being lived out in your life? This is not how normal people act. They can only conclude that a believer knows and believes in a God who is supernaturally shaping his thoughts, his beliefs, his actions. They can see the change that God is working in that life. Do you see how in these two verses, if you look back carefully, you see once again that Peter says how you think, what you believe about yourself, how you identify yourself, changes how you feel, your passions, and it shows up in how you act. Again, the gospel is transforming us from the inside out. That is what is unique and different about Christianity than any other religion. We respond to what God has done for us. So Peter is arguing that a primary purpose of a self-controlled life is its evangelistic value for affirming the truth of the gospel. When a believer lives in a winsome way before an unbeliever, especially in the face of suffering, it demonstrates the power of God to change and shape our lives. So here's the point. God intends to use your godly life as a testimony to his greatness. Is God able to use you right now the way that you're living? What kind of story are you telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means as believers, we cannot, we must not isolate ourselves from unbelievers around us. That may mean for you, you have to be creative. You have to find ways to interact with unbelieving co-workers, family members, or neighbors. And then you need to begin to serve them. You need to take an interest in them. If you're seeking to demonstrate the gospel, for instance, to a neighbor, find more and more ways to interact with them. Ask how you can help them, maybe in their yard, maybe around their house. Don't do all of the talking. Don't show that you're living for yourself and the most important thing they need to hear about is you and your vacation or your grandkids or what you're interested in or your views on politics. Listen to them. And ask good questions. Show them that you're interested in their life. Even sacrifice for them. Be patient and pray for the right opportunities to share the gospel. This doesn't mean we are saying lifestyle evangelism means you don't have to talk about Jesus. Remember, we just read in verses 9 and 10, we're to proclaim a declaring verb, the excellencies of him. They go together. So invite them over for coffee, dessert, or a meal. Ask how you might pray for them as you get to know them. Invest in their lives. So who is that person that comes to your mind that you need to do a better job of investing in, of listening to, of getting to know? I know it's hard for us to sometimes to get out of our comfort zone. That's hard for me. It's easy to say, well, my schedule's so busy, or I don't have to go across the street because I'm doing this over here with my kids. But if we're sojourners, beloved exiles seeking to proclaim his excellencies, we have to prioritize these kinds of relationships, don't we? 
with our coworkers, unbelieving teammates and classmates and our neighbors. Our passage this morning is asking, does your life demonstrate the attractiveness of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world? This week I came across an article that describes the power of a godly life. It told the story of a missionary couple and their young son and the time they spent in a terrible prison camp in the Philippines during World War II under Japanese tyranny. This couple, Herb and Ruth Klingen, recount their families, captors tortured, murdered, how they tortured, murdered, and starved many of the other camp's inmates. The prisoners especially hated and feared the camp commander, an officer named Konishi. Herb described one especially diabolical plan this man forced on the inmates near the end of the war. He wrote, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food ration, but gave us pale. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's unhusked rice. He writes, eating rice with its razor-sharp outer husk would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. We couldn't eat it that way, but we had no tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. Remember, many were on the verge of starvation. It was a death sentence for all the prisoners. And yet in God's providence, he spared the clingers and others when allied forces rescued them from that camp. This prevented that commander, Konishi, from carrying out his plans of shooting and killing all the remaining survivors. Herb closes his article by saying, years after the war, we learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. And before this man's death, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted. Their godly lives had an effect on this persecutor many, many years later. Does your life bear witness to the excellencies of our Christ? Can others see the attractiveness of of our faith by the way that you're living. Let's close this morning with a word of prayer. I'm going to close in prayer and then give you a few moments of silence as we prepare for the Lord's table. As we have silence in the auditorium, come before the Lord confessing your need of His grace in your life. Repenting of sin but also thanking and rejoicing in His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for King Jesus who's rescued us and made us His own. Father, I pray that we would be comforted and encouraged and yet motivated by the truth that we are His own beloved children. Lord, may we live as sojourners and exiles in this world. May we recognize our lives are not our own. That we're not living for temporal goals. May we seek to honor you, to glorify you with the lives that we live. Now as we turn our hearts and minds to this table, I pray that you would help us to understand its significance, to recognize God's love here presented before us. The sobriety we're to have when we come and yet the joy that we have when we see all that we will experience 
as his children.